So good morning, everyone, to the fourth session in the Swaraj Indic Academy Book Club uh, webinar series. And today we are delighted and honored to have Professor Subhash Kak uh, on, uh, online from the U.S. And uh, it's about, what, 8.30 in the morning for you, Professor, or a little later than that? It's 9.30 at my uh, place. Okay, so that's the U.S. Central Time. So we are here today to talk about uh, Professor with Professor Kak uh, uh, on his uh, latest book, The Wishing Tree, that has uh, uh, that has come out uh, uh, very very recently. And for those of you who don't know, Professor Kak is uh, a Kashmiri. He was born in Srinagar, and he has been uh, uh, he's an, uh, a regent's professor at the Oklahoma State University in Stillwater. And he did his education in both Kashmir and Delhi. And he's written 14 books on a wide variety of subjects that include history of science and art and other and another six volumes of poetry in English and Hindi. And his work has been showcased uh, in the popular in popular media, including the Discovery and History Channels, PBS, etc. He also his areas of specialization at the university are quantum mechanics and cryptography on which he has made some seminal contributions. And with that, a big, big welcome again to you, Professor Kark. And I will, before we get into the questions, I will lay out a couple of ground, uh, uh, you know, hygiene rules. One is that uh, we will leave the Q&A till the end and people can send in their questions uh, either through chat or at the end when we open it up, they can ask their questions. We are recording this, so we will be putting up uh, both a video and a sound and audio uh, a recording of this on the net. Uh, hopefully, if... Uh, if internet bandwidth cooperates tonight itself, if not, then in you know definitely by tomorrow. And with that, uh, let's get started. So uh, again, big welcome, uh, Professor Kark. And uh, your book, The Wishing Tree, is is short. It's uh, you know I think about uh, two hundred pages or so, but it covers a wide range of issues and topics. And the blurb says it is based in part on three invited lectures at Stanford University and the University of California that you gave. Before we get into the book itself, can you talk about the, then what led you to take these three lecture these uh, uh, these invited lectures that you delivered and turn that into a book and uh, and what were your what was your thinking when you did go about uh, uh, you know turning these lectures into a book? Uh, thank you, Abhinav, and welcome to everybody. Uh, I'm delighted that I'm a part of this webinar. Um, now, the first question, um, what happened was in the 1990s, I was sort of lucky to come by this um, new understanding of the astronomy of ancient India, which is my discovery of the astronomical code of the fire altars, which is also a part of the very organization of the Rig Veda. And uh, this um, obviously has a lot of implications for our understanding of ancient Indian history and also history of other ancient cultures because uh, these two are intertwined. So as a, a consequence, uh, I got into the lecture circuit. I was literally out every week in some university or the other across the United States and also India and elsewhere. And uh, at some point, um, we decided, well, I decided that, well, we need to also do something to bring these ideas beyond um, the academic world to the laypersons. So we did a book uh, with uh, two collaborators called In Search of the Cradle of Civilization, which came out, I believe, in 1996. But then I also decided to write popular uh, pieces on it for online magazines and for newspapers. And uh, after some point, I did have substantial amount of material at hand. And that was prior to these three lectures that I gave at University of California, Berkeley, at Irvine campuses, and at Stanford. So I thought it would be a good hook to hang these lectures on. But I could have also said Harvard or Michigan or Illinois and so on. And then um, I've added to that material. Uh, and so it's a kind of a... Um, broad uh, compilation. And my model for this book was the great book by Kumaraswamy, Ananda Kumaraswamy called The Dance of Shiva, which right. personally had uh, been very influential in my own uh, understanding of uh, the very heart of Indian civilization. 
Wonderful. So we are all, I think, uh, you know, thankful that you did uh, did go out almost every week on, you know, on the lecture circuit and then turn this into, into a book. And <clears throat> with that, I'll get started with the book itself. And early in your book, you talk about, uh, and, you know, when people talk about the origins of uh, Indian civilization, one of uh, the arguments made is uh, to take this uh, this, this so-called Proto-Indo-European uh, language and give it a home in somewhere in Central Europe or Europe. And you talk about uh, you know how a linguistic garden of Eden called the you know PIE, the Proto-Indo-European language, was postulated, and Europe was taken to be the homeland of this language. Your argument is that by appropriating the origins, the Europeans also appropriated the oldest literature of the Indians and that of other Indo-European speakers. And you, uh, and you write, and I quote, without a past, how could the nations of the empire ever aspire to equality of the West? End quote. And in some ways, I, you know, my, it seemed when reading this that this theft of the Indian civilization's very roots is, is in some, you know, I have to admit it is breathtaking in its scope, ambition, and even brazenness. Wouldn't one be inclined to say that this theft has had the desired result of producing, you know, entire generations of Indians who at several levels feel ashamed of their Indianness itself? Absolutely. I think that that is right. What happened uh, was that... Uh, the whole uh, problem, if I may put it that way, of uh, Indian um, ancient history uh, was intertwined with the, uh, with the issues of power that the European nations dealt with in the 19th century. The whole question was, well, why is it that if India has such a magnificent past, because there was no uh, dispute of that, um, then why is it that Indians have not been able to manage their own affairs? Why have they been defeated? Why are they politically um, subservient to other nations? So as an explanation, uh, the fact uh, or this um, narrative uh, was uh, adopted that really this past truly belongs to the people who came into uh, India, say, 3,500 years ago. And, and since their arrival in India, it's all been downhill. There's been uh, religion, there's been a lot of emotion, if you will, or emotional literature, bhakti and this and that. But as far as the higher um, expressions of uh, human imagination are concerned, there's not been very much of that. And, uh, but, but, you know, let me step back and um, address two aspects of it. You know, it's perfectly okay for somebody to say whatever they want because people can say whatever they want. I think the fact that, that this narrative was expressed in itself is not all that terrible a thing. What is terrible is the consequence where Indians have not stood up and spoken of um, what the facts are. Now, 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 it's not quite true that they haven't, but uh, clearly uh, when it was done, it was probably brushed aside. And uh, Indian past itself became a very, very important uh, political issue because the politics of contemporary times were entangled with what might have happened in remote past. Now, in other cultures and civilizations, that's not an issue. For example, if you go to Japan, Historians would say, well, the Japanese are not a homogeneous people. There were these Polynesians and maybe other uh, ancient cultures who finally created a homogeneous civilization. Whether that's true or not does not matter to the modern Japanese. And uh, what historians or archaeologists uh, might, or historians of religion might uh, want to believe about ancient India should not have mattered. But sadly, this is one of those unique things in the world history where uh, even now uh, people get very, very excited about. Oh, I can't hear you. Well, my apologies. I had muted uh, myself and forgot okay. to <laughs> mute uh, myself. Uh, this is, you know, you, you've touched upon, upon a topic that even today, 
uh, generates a lot of uh, passion and intensity, at least from the Indian side. And uh, very, very you know, much related to this, I don't want to spend too much of our time in this Q&A on, uh, on this topic, but I do want to touch briefly on the, on the Aryan invasion myth uh, before we move you know, to other you know, more fascinating topics. But in your book, you cite the British anthropologist Edmund Leach's famous essay that uh, you write, exposed the racist basis of the 19th century construction of Indian prehistory. And yet, you know, paradoxically, it is us Indians uh, in large, large numbers who continue to argue against uh, this myth and believe in an Aryan invasion, an Aryan migration, settlement, the trek, walk, jog, or whatever, you know, they choose to call it. And anyone who argues on the basis of evidence is branded as parochial, ignorant. And I've even seen some comments uh, saying that anyone who believes in the Aryan invasion theory is, uh, who, who argues, sorry, against our Aryan invasion theory is, is stupid. Uh, you know, uh, one comment was a typical, you know, uh, right-wing lack of intellect or something to that end. Uh, why is it that uh, whereas everywhere else these, uh, these racist origins have been rightly called out and it is considered... Uh, you know, uh, academically, you know, the equivalent of committing academic suicide, if one were to use these theories in other spheres, why is it that it, when it comes to India and Indians, it is considered par for the course to continue to write about and treat these, you know, theories as gospel? Well, um, two sides to uh, the, this question. First, um, um, you know, clearly what might have happened in the remote past was complicated. And perhaps there were migrations one way or the other. Although Stephen Oppenheimer, in his uh, most recent synthesis, argues that uh, the Homo sapiens sapiens came from Africa and came to India about 80,000 years ago. And within India, over a period of 40,000 years, uh, there was adaptation to different climatic conditions. And then the settling of Europe towards the Northwest and Asia, that is China and Japan, and towards the Northeast, occurred uh, due to migrations from India 40,000 years ago. But that doesn't mean that there were not people going back and forth. So that, in my view, should not matter. I think uh, if things were all fine, people would say, okay, there are a lot of theories, and this is one of the theories, and maybe it doesn't settle everything. Perfect. I think as far as the issue in the book was concerned, what I was addressing mainly was the whole question of the chronology of Indian texts, because uh, Max Miller and other scholars had said, well, they were about 1500 BC or later on, and therefore all of Indian sciences ought to be given uh, this uh, time period. However, when you look at uh, the texts that followed uh, the Rig Veda, for example, the Brahmana, the Shatapata Brahmana, and so on, you find that it has astronomical um, indicators which uh, speak of, say, 2000 BC, or there are other astronomical markers because of the precession of the Earth, and therefore one can always do that, go back to about 3000 BC and so on. But I think one reason why that was not... Uh, was not looked upon favorably by uh, scholars in the 19th century was because the West was also trying to create a chronology for the rise of civilization in Europe itself. And they thought that if uh, we were to accept 2500 BC or 3000 BC, although there were many Western scholars who did so. So it's not that uh, it was a monolithic uh, view completely controlled by Max Muller and his followers. So, uh, so I think the real issue is slightly more complicated. It's not even about the uh, migrations of people. The real issue was, did India have science? And what time did science arise? Because really, everybody knows even in Europe, uh, well, perhaps the original inhabitants of Europe were people who spoke Basque or languages related to Etruscan or Finnish, right? So it's not the migration of people or the Celtics do remember that they came in from the East. And likewise, the German groups also came in from the East. So I guess it was really a contest for, uh, is the Indian civilization, does, it, does the Indian civilization have science? 
it does have religion. Everybody accepts it, right? Uh, they, um, uh, mythology associated with uh, the Vedic books of the Brahmanas or the Puranas. But does it have science? And um, now, of course, there is science in the Shulba Sutras. There's geometry. And uh, what the historians of science did was to say, well, the Shilpa Sutra geometry must come after Euclid. So there was an attempt to say it's 300 BC and not 800 uh, BC or even earlier, which now uh, scholars of mathematics uh, do accept it's 800 BC. So now what happened then was that if Indian, Indians had an astronomy, uh, as in the astronomy of the fire altars, which is what my contribution was, then it was going to be a very big thing because that would imply that Indian sciences were not derived from Mesopotamia or from Greece, and that would completely alter uh, the fundamental ground on which history of ideas has been written, namely that it arose in Greece, and then there was some concession made that perhaps certain things came from Mesopotamia. And uh, if you look at progressivism, uh, of uh, rise of cultures and civilizations, then look, uh, Greece is the mother civilization. And I think my work uh, completely um, well disproves that because it shows absolutely clearly that look, you may you may analyze it whichever way you want, but there is a core of astronomy at the basis of fire altars. You cannot dispute that. And then you see that even in the organization of the Rig Veda, because you cannot say that Rig Veda is uh, subsequent to Euclid. I think this is what uh, exercised a lot of people. But I must also, I must also say that um, my work has been accepted by uh, historians of astronomy. You know, when it comes to uh, essays on um, history of science in various encyclopedias, they've always come to me. I think there is more opposition amongst certain circles in India, in certain universities, than, than in the West. You know, you look at uh, the latest UNESCO um, volume on uh, archaeoastronomy. So they came to me, they said, would you please uh, edit uh, the chapter or the sections on South Asia? And I said, certainly I would. I would. So I think it's not even people. It's about where did science arise? What is the kernel and the heart of Indian civilization? Now, when you talk to the best scholars in the West, people who have looked at uh, in, uh, ritual, like uh, Hesterman from Netherlands, they always said, well, at the basis of ritual is uh, a scientific kernel, right? India is all about being logic, you know, Nyaya, or use of logic to the extent it's possible. Uh, but there's something more. But, but I'm probably jumping the gun and you're going to be asking some questions on that. So let me just stop here for the time being. Sure, sure. Absolutely, I do. You know, when you said uh, that uh, uh, these theories have been accepted uh, uh, in the West and uh, not so much uh, in India, I was reminded of, uh, I think it was the title of a chapter in one of uh, Arun Shuri's books, M Eminent Historians, where he writes, Muddai Sust Gava Chust. So, it, you know, I'm sort of reminded of that. Uh, in <clears throat> When you talk about, uh, uh, you seem to favor the out of India theory, which is, and writing around that, you also say that uh, there have been three waves uh, before this of major migration from post-Harappan India to the West. You say that the first one was around 4,000 years ago when uh, colonies were established in Babylonia, Alexandria, Memphis, Rome. Uh, uh, around two and a half thousand years ago. And third, the gypsies, the Romas, who left India a thousand years ago as a result of uh, Turkic and Arab uh, invasions. And these, uh, the people who left were mostly the Rajputs and the Jats. And what is tragic is that uh, the murder of a million Roma between 1935 and 1945 scarcely evokes a memory today. You know, we, uh, uh, you know, we all talk about uh, the horrific genocide of millions of Jews by the Nazis, but for some reason, the murder of a million Roma gypsies is 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 again, you know, um, barely gets a uh, gets a mention. My question is that. Uh, uh, Earlier, you talked about that, that uh, there was, uh, you know, some uh, 
migration of the very first earliest humans about 80,000 years ago from Africa into India and then about 40,000 years uh, you know, before present to Europe and other places. How does this fit in with uh, you know, this particular out of India theory where starting 4,000 years ago, there were waves of migration. Uh, where does this seem to fit in? Because so far, a lot of the theories that we are taught, at least in India in school, are that uh, you know Aryans came in from uh, you know from Central Europe. How can you talk about this? I think it all hangs together. Now, I'm not an expert. I'm not a biologist. Um, I don't do you know population studies. But basically, what I'm doing is arguing or repeating what uh, other experts uh, who do all of that are saying, and, and primarily uh, Oppenheimer's view about migrations um, which took place 80,000 years ago or 40,000 years ago out of India. Um, and I also conceived that um, actual uh, events or history must have been much more complicated. And it's not that uh, India was just this reservoir of people and people just kept on leaving and they were not people who were coming back as well. So clearly uh, must have been a very uh, complex process. But now if you look at the Harappan period, the antecedents of which go back to about 7500 BC or so, say about 10,000 years ago, and then they have a whole series of cultural transformations which go to this grand period which has been dated to about 3300 BC to 2600 first, and then 2600 to 1900, which is where we had the greatest um, uh, achievements in terms of uh, town planning and uh, the, uh, the pottery and other artifacts that were created. Now, there is a collapse in 1900 BC, and it's soon after that collapse that we find that people with Sanskritic names uh, in Mesopotamia, the Kassites, and soon after, afterwards we had the Mitannis, who over generations and generations have Sanskritic names, and they worship Vedic gods. All right. Now, it's also very interesting that this provides the potential for the solution to this big problem, also connected to, you know, where did science arise? Where did art arise? Uh, the, and the problem is you have the Indus script, Right. And then you have the Brahmi script, which goes back to Ashokan times, although there are some scholars in Sri Lanka who say that uh, Brahmi in Sri Lanka goes back even earlier to about 500 or 600 BC. Now, Brahmi and the early Asian or West Asian scripts have some connection, but people have completely ignored the fact that the Sanskritic people who were not Iranian, who were Indo-Aryan, and there are some linguistic reasons uh, to, to see that because you have the reduplicated T, for example, which you don't find in Iranian and you find that in Indo-Aryan, which is Sanskrit and Middle Aryan languages. Okay, now the Mitannis had that. They were there in the early second millennium BC, and that's about the time when some of those West Asian scripts arise, right? So that Somebody, some scholars ought to see this. Now, I have written some papers on that in uh, journals which do cryptologic uh, work where I've suggested, well, I've, I've only looked at, at the connection between Indus and Brahmi, and I believe that there are enough grounds to, sh to, to accept that Brahmi is derived from Indus, although that's not the standard view. But it's quite possible that the other scripts from West Asia are also derived from Indus, and that would uh, that would uh, make a lot of the stuff connected in a sense, which is very logically compelling. And But now to come back to your question about movements of people. So we do have that movement of people, which went out of India because clearly due to certain um, climatic event or maybe um, the drying up of the Saraswati River, as has been suggested by archaeologists. So there were people, there was a movement to the east and there was a movement to the West, and that explains certain connections. Now, now also in the Harappan period itself, there, were, there was tremendous trade between India and Mesopotamia and Egypt. And later on, after the Roman Empire arose, there was tremendous trade between India and Rome. And there, there's 
There's a lot of evidence of that all over India and in the South as well. So people have been going back and forth. And also India was the most densely populated region of the ancient world. And so it's more likely that people went out and people must have come in or the people who came in maybe came in as small minorities or groups as uh, happened even when the Turks came in. They didn't come in wholesale. They came in as a certain elite group or the Persians came in as a certain elite group just as Indians are now going as a elite group to Europe and to Americas. So I don't think there is any contradiction at all between uh, this evidence of movements of Indians outside of India and also this helps us explain a lot of commonalities that exist. Now, whether that would, uh, whether that is deep enough for us to explain why we have the same tripartite division of early Roman society as we see in India, you know, which is also a part of the very Vedic view of reality, we don't know. I think that needs a lot of new research. Uh, volume, please. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when you talked about uh, 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 about the connection between the Indus and the and the Brahmi script, I wanted to um, I wanted to show a page uh, page eighty four from your book. I'm going to see. Uh, I don't know how legible it is. Uh, it is going to be, but I'll hold this up for a couple of seconds, and then I have a question around this. So, if people can make out these, this is a table that compares the ten most commonly. Uh, uh, you know, uh, found symbols in the script. And my question is that uh, you basically say that, uh, okay, so one is that if it, if you look at the deciphering of the Indus script, you do acknowledge that there are, you know, a lot of difficulties in deciphering the script, primarily because uh, you don't have, uh, you know, lengthy enough pieces that would lend themselves to, to uh, deciphering. Uh, but you then talk about the similarity between the Brahmi and the Indus script and you looked at the 10 most likely letters from the two scripts and, and you say that the probability that the number of matches happening by chance is less than 10 to the power minus 12. Our, you know, uh, I think our audience is, is less the liberal arts type and more the mathematical and the computer science oriented type. So I, maybe if you could give us a little more, uh, you know, technical background into how you went about the, uh, performing this analysis and, and, and what you saw as a relationship between the Brahmi and the Sanskrit letters. Uh, you know, you, in your book, you say that this is something that is out of scope of, uh, you know, of, of your book. But uh, maybe if you can spend a few minutes uh, uh, for us here. Sure, Abhinav. Uh, this is based on two um, scholarly papers I wrote for a uh, Western or American journal called Cryptologia. And, uh, the, and it's on the web. Uh, if people just uh, uh, Google a frequency analysis of the Indus script and the other one is called Indus and Brahmi, further connections. Okay, uh, the argument is some, somewhat like this. If you look at uh, the Brahmi characters, which are the Sanskrit letters, right? You have, say, 48 of them. And then you have several hundred, two or three hundred uh, um, characters of uh, Indus, right? So now the question that I was asking was that if the Sanskritic people came to India after Indus had collapsed, which was the prevailing view, say in the 60s or 70s, then what is the probability that they would look at uh, the shards of pottery on which these Indus characters are inscribed and then create a script which, in which the most popular 10, the most commonly occurring 10 characters literally correspond to the 10 most uh, commonly uh, characters that are used for Brahmi. So you can set up a uh, probabilistic argument, which is what I did. And I said the, uh, the probability of that happening is extremely small. You know, for, if you, for example, if you look at the most commonly occurring Indus letter, it is the jar letter, right? Now, the most commonly occurring Sanskrit letter is sir, which also looks like the jar. Or you have mer of Brahmi, which is like the fish. And that is the second most commonly occurring letter of Indus, the fish sign. Then you have the stick with two legs sign, which is the of uh, Brahmi, is the third most commonly occurring. So on probability alone, you know, normally 
if you go to a certain region, there are two layers of evidence and they are connected physically, right, in terms of shape, form. You would tend to say, well, they are also genetically connected. One is derived from the other. So this is one of those most astonishing things that here are scholars or journalists, uh, not necessarily scholars, who say, well, here are these two layers of evidence, but there is no genetic connection at all. We are not going to accept it because it does not correspond with what we favor as what has happened in, in, in ancient India. Fascinating. Uh, moving to the, now I'll, I'll move to the Vedas. And uh, here is again something that I think uh, uh, bears. Uh, uh, so you, you write that the central idea behind the Vedic system is the notion of a band, bandhu or connections between the astronomical, the terrestrial and the physiological. Uh, I, I couldn't, uh, you know, while I got some of it, some of what you were saying or, or, hint, or alluding to, can you elaborate what you really meant by this, you know, three-way connection? Yeah, well, okay, two things. I think uh, we in India have really lost our true understanding of the Vedas. What are the Vedas? Well, it's captured in the very invocation before the Gayatri Mantra. Om Bhur Bhuva Swaha. This Bhu is the earth, Bhuva is the atmosphere, Swaha is the heavens or the sky. So the basic fundamental idea is that there is this connection, there is this linkage. And you see this everywhere in the uh, ritual, that there is this linkage between the three. And it's because of that link linkage that we are able to um, even comprehend reality. Now, um, uh, you know, uh, I also did mention, or I, my research also showed that the number 108, for example, was a part of the very code that was uh, used in the fire altar ritual or in the Ashwamedha ritual. I have a book on that also called the Ashwamedha or in the organization of the Veda. So what is this number 108? Or why does the Japamala have 108 beats, right? That's because they, uh, the Vedic astronomers had determined that the sun and the moon are 108 times their respective diameters from the earth. So the whole idea is that just as we want to reach out to the sky, right, metaphorically, so there is a sky within us, which is the lamp of consciousness. So we're making a symbolic journey from the earth, which is our body, through the atmosphere, which are our pranas, into the inner sun. Then as a deity, you might consider inner sun to be Vishnu or goddess or Shiva or whatever else. So the very, now this is a big uh, issue as well in science. You know, how is math able to explain reality to us? Or why have we been able to understand reality? Uh, I think Eugene Wigner wrote a very famous uh, paper on it called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in Explaining Reality. So I think this thing of connection is this amazing idea that the Vedic Rishis had, uh, the Bandhu between the earth, the, uh, the, the, the earth, the atmosphere, and the sky. Now, but this is not the only idea. There are two other ideas, which I expressed in another of my books called the Pragna Sutras. And there are three essential ideas of the Vedas. One is the Bandhu. The other is Paroksha, which you see in the Brihad Aranya Kupanishad, for example. That Paroksha Priya Idhi Deva Pratyaksha Visha. That there's no simple ideology or set of precepts which explain what reality is, which is also in Munda Kopanishad, right? There are two kinds of knowledge, the apara and para. Apara is the lower knowledge, which is about things and their relationships, right? Uh, objective knowledge. But then there is a subjective knowledge about the experiencing self, which is para, right? And therefore, between apara and para is paroksha. These are some of the most subtle things that you have in any culture, you know, absolutely inspirational, which is what, you know, people like Nietzsche or Schopenhauer or, you know, all the, some of the greatest uh, thinkers all over the world have recognized. And third is the idea of yagya or yagna, right, which is transcendence. 
which also explains why Hinduism is so many different things to different people because it has to be because we are all at different stages in our personal journeys and for each stage we connect to something else right and each stage is a sacrifice where you cease to be who you were earlier you know which is that sacrificial transcendence and then you become something else right so these are in my view the three fundamental ideas which explain the vedas uh, the understanding of the rishis and the brahmanas and the puranas and everything else and indian music and everything else I happened to be watching, uh, uh, you know, as I was uh, preparing uh, the questions to ask, I came across a, 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 you know, 10, 12 minute video of yours on YouTube where uh, you, you talk about, about quantum theory and you say that the brain has uh, two levels of functioning, one at a neural level and the other at a quantum level. And, you know, when you were talking right now about the, about the Vedas and its wisdom of transcendental unity and quality and so on, you do talk about the relationship between the two in terms of understanding the brain at uh, one level is at uh, understanding it at a neural level and the other one at a quantum level. And you, uh, if, I, if I remember correctly, you also said that uh, Schrodinger's equations uh, you know, work at a deterministic level, but they, uh, but they happen to break down when, when, you, when you bring in the observer. Uh, could you please elaborate on that? Okay, well, um, uh, you know, Schrodinger's um, story is a very uh, romantic one, and I do mention that in my book, right? Because Schrodinger himself uh, claimed that the idea that um, uh, a quantum state must be a superposition of all possible uh, states was uh, uh, the Mahavakya, I am Atma Brahman, that this Atman is Brahman, that this small thing is the entire cosmos. That was the key idea that came to him. Well, the problem is this. All of physics, uh, classical physics, Newtonian physics, so all of science is about objects, right? And in quantum mechanics is also about objects, but you have brought in the observer from the back door, so to speak. When you speak of, well, this is what happens when a measurement is made, then the superposition of the quantum state collapses to one of the possibilities by a certain probability, right? But still, where, how do you define this uh, observer? And quantum mechanics has no place for it. Although quantum mechanics has some very interesting parallels, and these were parallels which were noted by Heisenberg and by others with Vedanta, right? That, uh, and in fact, the famous uh, biography of uh, Schrodinger by Moore mentions how the very explication of quantum mechanics that took place was totally consistent with Vedanta, because Vedanta is about paroksha at one level. Paroksha are these paradoxes, and you have fundamental paradoxes in quantum mechanics. You know, you have uh, wave and you have particle. You know, the same reality can be seen from in one prism, it's a wave; another prism, it's a particle. All right. Now, uh, so so that is one. Now, what about the brain? You have the same problem. In fact, um, it's so turns out that I've been invited to write a uh, paper on consciousness on which I've been working last couple of weeks uh, uh, looking at uh, the whole issue of the brain. And um, neuroscientists have not been able to find a single uh, neural correlate of unified consciousness. Okay? So then the question is, if the brain is a classical machine, like a neural network you know, of, of enormous complexity, no doubt, where does consciousness arise, right? Why does uh, this machine, the brain machine, have awareness and freedom while the silicon machine does not have freedom? Right? Now, uh, there are some people who say, well, it's just the degree of complexity. When the silicon machine itself will become extremely complex, suddenly awareness would arise from somewhere. But I think that is, that's, too, uh, that's too simplistic. All right, now, the deepest theory there is, is quantum mechanics. And the physical processes inside the brain must have a quantum mechanical you know, basis. So quantum mechanics, from that perspective, should be a part of brain dynamics. Now, of course, neuroscientists say, well, but there's too much of noise inside the brain. And therefore, we cannot see how 
the equations of quantum mechanics would be valid in our um, understanding or in our you know analysis of brain dynamics well but quantum mechanics need not just deal with uh, physical neural nodes they could also be higher level uh, virtual entities you know just as you can have virtual particles as in the zero point vacuum if you will there could be similar particles or nodes inside the brain which are then able to explain the coherence that is a correlate of unified consciousness but you cannot see it from within if you are looking at uh, neural structures because they're very far apart and and there are all kinds of um, um, all kinds of paradoxical things that happen inside the brain for example a person can lose the capacity to read which is called alexia because of trauma to the head but still maintain the capacity to write so long as the person is not looking at the paper you know these are some of those paradoxes which could perhaps some of those could be explained if there was a neural model of brain functioning this is a minority view you know i can see that but there may be potential there for one to uh, push this model further okay i think uh, this should have a vetted the appetite of people to go and and look up some of your you know articles in this area i uh, i want to move uh, you know coming to the end of the of the questions that i had i want to move uh, to uh, to your recent writings uh, for swarajya magazine itself and i think the the most recent one is where you talk about possible appropriation of buddhist traditions by christianity in your book towards the latter chapters you dwell on the same topic where you write that uh, french missionaries for example to lhasa who came to that region in the mid 18th century were astonished by how similar buddhist ritual was to the catholic your writing i think hints even possibly i would say suggests that to some degree jesus himself may have been a myth a conjuring up by paul uh, you know done much later uh, and for for our viewers could you also talk about uh, your your article where you say that you know a lot of these buddhist traditions were appropriated incorporated into christianity so there seems to have been a synthesis but more of a a, a one way synthesis of uh, you know so to say well uh, my swaraj article probably updates what is in the book because here i mentioned christian lintner's work and christian lintner who's a sanskrit scholar from denmark um who has examined the original uh, greek and aramaic texts of the new testament uh, uh, gospels and he has looked at looked at the corresponding buddhist texts and he says it's his theory and i have links to his articles it's his theory which uh, uh, argues that some of uh, the new testament books are a word for word and sentence for sentence uh, transcription of what is in the corresponding buddhist texts now what you're saying there are scholars who claim that uh, the whole um, christian tradition uh, was uh, created by paul now i don't want to get into all of that it's a very complicated thing and there are you know people who have different views and there are it's also a matter of faith for a lot of people you also have the dead sea scrolls for example uh, where uh, a lot of what came as a part of uh, the new testament was already sort of hinted at and and so the whole question of you know what is the kernel of christian belief and how much it is how much of it is based on fact and how much of it was appropriation and there is a lot of appropriation which is accepted for example the whole story of uh, barlam and josephat you know uh, these were very very popular saints uh, of the middle ages in europe and their uh, their miracles were celebrated and as i mentioned in my article you know they are a part of the holiday schedule even in rome and in greece and later on of course even the church has admitted that that was all a translation Uh, or appropriation of uh, stories from from the east so so clearly i i think my part okay the other question that you mentioned or issue that you mentioned is 
uh, it was appropriated one way. It doesn't mean, and I think that's a very important point, it doesn't mean that Christianity is Buddhism because there is a fundamental difference. So these were stories which were put to a specific use. And in my own reading of, uh, uh, say, Greek or European mythology myths and the stories in the Puranas, which, um, as I mentioned earlier, can only be understood through the framework of Bandhu, Paroksha and Yajna, which not every Indian also knows and recognizes. It seems to have been lost for a long time. There is a difference. There are a lot of parallels, but the degree to which this deep, um, deep vision arose in India is not to be found. Things are much more superficial. For example, if you look at the Greek myths, the gods live in the heavens. You know, you have uh, Zeus, who's like Dyaus, right? Dyaus in Sanskrit. But it's not at the same subtle level. Which subtle level is captured in, in our thought through the very idea of Samudra Manthan, that in every creation are these polarities. From the one arise the two, the devas and the asuras. And there is this struggle. Within each, there are the devas and the asuras. And through that, all the wonderful anubhuti arises. All the wonderful gifts arise. Right? And therefore, in the ritual itself, there could be a reading which is daivik. There is a reading which is asuric. And right. uh, I, I make this, uh, your uh, volume is out. I make this case in my book uh, on Ashwamedha itself. Because um, when you go to many of these Sanskritic courses in Western universities, in fact, I was in Boston uh, a few years ago, and the curator who had done a course in uh, Harvard, she told me, look, the very first lecture, the professor said, hey, this Indian civilization is so crazy. The queen sleeps with a dead horse. And it was a response to that. I wrote that book uh, on Ashwamedha. Well, within India, there were those who took a Asuric reading of the ritual because the ritual was such that it, was, it offered everything to everybody based on where you were. Because we start off, if one were to say, in an asuric form where we believe that our bodies are everything, which is what the asuric means, you know, to, to, to conflate ourself with the body. That is the asuric view. And there's a wonderful dialogue on that in Chandogya Upanishad, for example. And then slowly you go further and you come to the daivic understanding, which takes you to a higher level where you are much more to the in tune with the very heart of your being. You, you know, very pertinent point you, uh, in, in the first half of your book, you, when you're comparing Greek and Hindu mythologies, you detail while, you know, the Indian stories are according to uh, a self-conscious logic, as you write. The European stories, on the other hand, are very disconnected. And you, and you cite examples to show that, uh, that how the origin of these myths of these stories would have to be there for Indian and not, uh, you know, not Greek or, or European because of the degree of completeness that is exhibited in the Indian, uh, uh, you know, uh, epics and the Indian uh, books rather than the European ones. I uh, want to, so now open up this, uh, uh, this Q and A to our audience. So you have uh, two ways in which you can ask questions. One is if you send in your question over chat, I will read it out and then have Professor Kark answer it. The second is you can unmute your line and directly ask the question. And while you're thinking and composing your questions, I will go through the chat window and see if any questions have come in, in, in the last, uh, since we started this chat. And uh, I, okay, I do see a few of them. I will start going through them. So one is, uh, why did <clears throat> so here's a question professor why did congre congregational worship as in abrahamic movements like judaism christianity and islam not get invented or established as a norm in the indian civilization do you have any thoughts on on this well it did uh, you look at buddhism buddhism is buddham sharanam gachami uh, Dhammam Sharanam Gachami, but also Sangham Sharanam Gachami. See, the Buddhist movement was congregational. That's why 
we find such parallels between Buddhism and Christianity. But uh, the general religion, if I may use that term, that's not the right uh, term really, Sanatana Dharma, if you will, was not congregational because of the very idea of personal journey. You know, uh, the heart of Sanatana Dharma is, um, I've used the image of if you are a bird and we are stuck in this brush um, on the ground, you have to walk through the brush, go to the highest point, and only then can you fly, right? Which in the Yoga Sutras is, let's say, Kaivalyam, right? So the, it's all about being connected to the right stage where you can draw upon, uh, upon what the congregation is to offer you. Therefore, in that sense, um, Buddhism was an innovation. Uh, and uh, perhaps now that uh, the whole world has become a globe, you know, has become a single village, if you will, um, maybe Hinduism or Sanatana Dharma also needs to create new ways where people can, uh, can partake of the knowledge that is available because uh, modern times both isolate you and connect you at the same time. So when, since you do need connection, how do you do that? So may, maybe a kind of a Sangha in the sense of what Buddha created is also required. And in that sense, perhaps Buddhism is a part of Sanatana Dharma, right? But, but then it has this emphasis on Shunyata too much, at least in Mahayana, uh, where it doesn't go all the way to these three legs that I spoke about. And therefore, okay, Buddhism is Sanatana Dharma to a certain extent. But if you want to go beyond that, then you need something more. And we need Sangha for that. And maybe efforts like this one are a part of that. Okay, fascinating. It's one, uh, in, in some sense, uh, you know, one could also, however, make the point that Buddhism, uh, uh, you know, was born and it evolved at a time that was, you know, several centuries before uh, the advent of uh, Christianity and certainly, you know, before Islam. So was it uh, again a question of some of the elements of, uh, you know, what, what do you say, Sangham uh, Gachami and Sangham Sharanam Gachami? Was that aspect then taken from Buddhism into Christianity or, uh, you know, what aspects of it uh, came the other way? But... Uh, it, it's it's a it's a fascinating question. I'll move to the next one, which is that uh, this is from uh, from Akash, and he's and he writes: Do you think objective science will ever arrive at the origin of consciousness? If no, does that mean the tussle between scientific materialism and Vedanta will go on indefinitely? That is the question. I also wanted to add: uh, If you read some of the literature that's been coming out, the, some of the nonfiction, you know, sort of popular nonfiction books. One is uh, uh, I. The Rise of the Robots by Martin Ford and, uh, uh, you know, the, the coming singularity or some such name that argues that the, the singularity is now not a question of if, but a question of when. And, and some postulate a, a time period of anywhere from 10 to 15 years before machines will get the kind of consciousness that, uh, you know, that you, for, for, you know, have been saying that it's possibly not going to happen. Uh, the question, uh, the first one uh, is a very um, good one. I don't think objective science will ever be able to explain consciousness. And that is something that Munda Kopanishad, that is the, that is the Indian view, that, uh, that even the Vedas in the Munda Kopanishad, the Vedas are also lower knowledge. They are also apara. Because para knowledge can only be intuitive, can only be experienced. But... The beauty of the Vedic system, which is why they are so relevant, because, you know, one could very easily say, why do stuff which is 5,000 or 4,000 or thousands of years old? Well, in many ways, Vedas, and I'm talking about Vedas as an entire system, the Upanishads, everything else, even the Puranas, which if you knew what the grammar was, even the Puranas, some of which people may not have appreciated in the past, become beautiful. So the Vedas touch upon the mystery of reality in a sense that no other literature, literature does. So they're greatly inspirational. And the Vedas say, well, this is just to 
indicate to you what reality is. You know, in Indian aesthetics, um, it's also stated that you can really not teach anybody. People must arrive at that understanding on their own. You can only have the dhvani associated with that teaching. You can, you can only suggest it. You cannot, you know, push it down or shove it down anybody's throat, so to speak. So, uh, so I think the beauty of, uh, uh, of the Vedic texts or the Indian texts is that they go to the very heart of the mystery. And that heart of the mystery is more important than ever before in modern times. Why? Because the West, in its uh, pushing of technology to the extent it can be pushed, right? Creating machines. That's where that inflection point comes in has reached a point where these machines will be bereft of spirit because they can only do things which, are, which they are asked to, to, to do. And therefore, the very question of who we are and what that reality is becomes even more urgent. And in that sense, as things become worse, as, and, and uh, a lot of the disorder that we see around the world is a consequence of pushing the machine paradigm to the extent it can be pushed. As things get worse, that's when the hunger and thirst for deeper knowledge will also become greater. So I think there is a kind of a confluence uh, taking place between where science is going, and a lot of that is also inspired by Indian thoughts. Let's not forget that, you know, uh, quantum mechanics. Some of the smartest people that I know, and I know many Nobel Prize winners and others, they are truly inspired by Indian thoughts because Indian thought is not dogmatic. It, all that it's saying is that, look, there is a deeper level because if it is all material things, then how would consciousness arise? And where is, what is the mystery of our own being? So I think, I think it's just fantastic. You know, I, uh, as you were talking, I, uh, you know, qu- uh, sort of a question came to my mind, which is that, uh, Given that uh, Vedic teaching, the, the principles uh, of, uh, of Vedic thought have been uh, so, they are in, in many ways so different from the way in which modern science and mathematics is taught today, which is in a very deterministic manner. How do Indians, uh, you know, retain hold over that part? Because it is in some ways a, a tragic fact that if, you go if one goes through undergoes a, a modern Indian education, then it is at it is fundamentally at odds with the Vedic system of uh, of uh, in, you know imbibing knowledge. What do you have any thoughts on how you know this can be preserved uh, at at you know at any level? Well, it, it's a challenge in the West as well. Uh, the education in the West deadens uh, students. That's why they opt out. They get into drugs or whatever else, and they say, well, science is not uh, for us, which is why, you know, there are not too many people doing science in the West. They say, well, it's all a machine, so we're going to die, so let's just enjoy life or do whatever, do music or get high, right? Well, but it can be done. Why can it be done? Because if you truly look at science itself, it has all kinds of paradoxes. And if you teach science, through its paradoxes. See, for example, quantum mechanics, you have Wheeler's delayed choice paradox, which says what you do now can influence the remote past, right? Impossible, but it's a part of quantum mechanics and it's been shown in the lab setting. So I think what one has to do is to point to these paradoxes as points of inspiration, not just to say that it means that you have to give up on science, no. The Vedic view, and this is a fantastic dialogue, which uh, is in the Bhagavatam, Bhagavat Puran, where I think Yudhishthir approaches Narada and says, you know, what is life all about? He says, well, you must do this and you must learn this and this, but finally you must confront paradoxes, Faroksha, right? And that's what really life is for everybody, no matter what one is doing, even in business, there are paradoxes. Okay, everything is going well, and then suddenly the Great Recession occurs from nowhere or they might be in the throes of another one right now and so all ideologies are good only for a certain period of time 
And what the Vedas teach us, it's not to discover lost science. What they teach us is a certain attitude of which helps us get connected with the mystery within our own heart, which empowers us, which empowers us in a fashion so that we can even do the problems of the day, you know, the usual problems that we must confront with in a more creative way, in a way where we can go out of the box. And when we go out of the box, then we see infinite possibilities that others are not seeing, which is when we become creative or leaders. So I think it is there. It's not just for the esoteric and for, uh, you know, people who are interested in consciousness science or, or, or philosophy and so on. It's for every, everyone to be in touch with their own self and to be in touch with the environment around us, the society around us. Okay. Uh, there was one, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing a quick time check and we are coming, we are actually past the hour. So what I would do is uh, one is that uh, you are, uh, you know, active on Twitter. So you do have a Twitter handle and, uh, uh, you know, I'll, I'll share the link to the audio and the video recording after this. Before closing, I, I wanted to check if, if we have Ram Rani Ji with us also on this uh, uh, webinar and if she wanted to share her thoughts because she had, uh, you know, she, she had a response to an earlier question, which was, uh, you know, what were some of the, uh, you know, uh, elements that, uh, uh, that, that got shared or, you know, taken from Buddhism into Christianity. I, if she's online, I wonder if she could, you know, briefly uh, talk about those. I could read out some of her comments that she has sent, but uh, if she's online, would she mind talking to those points? Well, one, can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. Yeah. All right. Um, what I said was about how some of the documented um, situations of Buddhist influence in the Third Crescent. Um, I would say that issue in about how Paul said, you know, I give my body to be burned and it, it um, from first Corinthians. Uh oh. I it's seem to have. Clear. I have to be having a problem here. No, it's not very clear. Right? I, I'm having very slow internet and I keep losing you. So, yeah. Well, one thing, if you can hear me, that I think is irrefutable is that John the Baptist was <clears throat> Jesus's guru and John the Baptist was an Essene and the Essenes were highly influenced by the Buddhist missionaries. They used candles, they used puja lights, they used incense, they lived in the desert, they begged for food, they, did, they were celibacy, they didn't get married. They were just like step-by-step -step Buddhist influence. And Jesus was, it was, his guru was John the Baptist, who was in a scene. So you can just look at step by step how the scenes differed from their Jewish parents and its Buddhist influence. I mean, there's no doubt about it in, in my mind. And I think anybody who has an open mind to that will see it too. Right. Uh, let me also uh, make uh, one additional point. Um, you know, sometimes uh, people in India uh, tend to see India only in geographical terms that here is what arose. So let's only look at dharma as it arose in India. Well, I think the world has changed. India is an idea now. The whole world is India. I think at least that's how we should see it. We are all the same. All human beings are the same. We're all brothers and sisters. And so what is knowledge for India is also knowledge for everybody else. So I think where, where some, a new initiative is needed in India is to be a bit more outgoing and not just look within, but also look without. And, uh, and there are groups all over the world and we see fantastic articulators of that, such as Tulsi uh, Gabbard, who uh, it's quite possible might be president in some time because she's extremely talented. And so there are people who are not, you know, in terms of their origin connected to India in any way, who are so passionately devoted to uh, the Sanatan Dharma. So we need to go out and be connected um, in Bali, in Indonesia, in Vietnam, the Champa, there are 15% of the Chams are still connected, but Indians are not even reached out to them. So people everywhere. So in other words, we need to look at Vedas and Sanatan Dharma as humanity's 
something that humanity owes. And we need to do whatever needs to be done to bring it to other people who might be so interested. It's not a dogmatic thing. You know, you've got to be at a certain level where you would say, oh, this is fantastic. You know, I want to know what this mystery is. And here is something that provides answers. Thank you, uh, Ram Raniji, and thank you, uh, Professor Kak. I, we are, you know, uh, eight minutes past uh, the top of the hour, so I will bring this webinar to an end now. I want to thank everyone who, you know, took the time on a, on a Sunday evening to dial in, and especially, especially Professor Kak, who, you know, is taking this time off on his Sunday morning. I will be putting these links up on on uh, SoundCloud and on YouTube. And uh, for those willing, they can uh, follow Professor Kak on Twitter at his handle is Subhash Kak one, the number one, all one word. So thank you once again. Have a good night. And we'll stay connected on Twitter again. Thank you. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, everybody.